Welcome to episode 79 of Therese Talk. I'm your host, Therese Main. By day, I co-host a morning radio show on a network in New York and Pennsylvania. By night, I'm a podcaster. If you're a woman like me who loves Jesus and just wants to serve her family and community a little bit better, you're in the right place. If you would, take a moment right now to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. It's something we don't like to talk about. It's something we don't even like to think about. But the reality is one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience some sort of child sexual abuse. It's usually perpetrated by someone the child knows. And those are the stats from the CDC. I wonder if those numbers are underreported because oftentimes abuse is kept secret. Faith Ingram has lived with that secret most of her life. She grew up in the church as a pastor's kid and was repeatedly abused by her father. Her mother became aware of the abuse, but it remained in the dark for the rest of the family and for the church. Faith confided in her college fiancé. In the spirit of forgiveness, her father actually performed their wedding ceremony. But then the abuse happened again. This time, the victim was Faith's mentally handicapped niece. That's when she decided the secret needed to be told. They told her father that he could be forgiven, but that he must accept the consequences of his behavior. Now Faith and her husband have a ministry that teaches the church how to biblically deal with sexual sin. Thanks for talking with us today. Oh, you're welcome. When someone has gone through trauma in the church like you have, it would be a natural progression for them to lose their faith, not just in people, but in God. Explain what that was like being a young person who was raised in the church, a pastor's kid. You grew up in the house of God and this horrible thing happened. Did you ever begin to question God's goodness or his love for you. That is the normal thought process is um, you grow up in church and you hear that God is a God that, you know, he knows, be sure your sin will find you out, that type of thing. And it seems like these people that are in leadership are actually getting away with evil. and you kind of wonder, okay, why aren't they receiving the consequences that they have said that I'll receive for being disobedient? Um, And it does cause you to, to question where is God? Why? I remember as a child, um, I accepted Christ when I was five years old and I am very, very thankful for that because I believe that the Holy Spirit was still a witness in my soul that he did care about me, that he was still a God that's in control and a God of love. Um, But I know there's, you still struggle. You still have those, you know, if he, if he's God, why didn't he stop the abuse? And you struggle with those things. But I think that because God was all that I had to hold on to, my relationship with him grew stronger because I didn't trust people because my dad had violated that trust. So I didn't know who I could trust. What advice would you give someone who is in that point where 
the abuse has stopped, but they are feeling so alone, so doubting, so questioning. What kinds of things were you able to do that kept you close to the Lord? The end of Malachi 3 and the beginning of Malachi 4 is it actually addresses those issues that a lot of survivors of abuse deal with. And it's talking about, you know, it seems like these people who do evil are getting away with it and they mock God and, and they go free. And then in chapter four of that, um, of Malachi, God addresses that. And he says, but the day is coming. So we know that we may not have justice here on earth, but the day is coming when God will make it all right. And those types of verses and the verses in Psalms that um, emphasize that God is a God who cares about the oppressed, those verses were what I took to heart. It's heartbreaking to know that your story is not unique. And it's a story that we're hearing more and more. I don't think that the problem is more prevalent than it has been in the past, but that maybe it's just being brought to light more than it has in the past. What is the problem in, and I don't even want to say the American church, because I'm sure that this is a worldwide church issue. What is the problem in God's church that is allowing such grievous just violation of of young people to happen it's not new because we know that even in the early church there were problems of abuse and different things but i i think it's really hard to put your finger on it but i think we want to look at people and not be suspicious we don't want to think that these things can go on in our church. So when they're brought to light, we don't want to believe them. And we will kind of make every excuse not to believe them, to explain them away, because we can't think that somebody would do these types of things. When we hear that something like this has happened, it's so easy to be black and white to say that was an evil act. Therefore, that person is evil. And if you've witnessed any of the good that that person has done in any part of their life, it's hard for us to realize that both of those traits can exist in one person. And we know that offenders groom not only their victims, but they groom the gatekeepers. Mm. The, the protectors of those children are also groomed to trust them and to think of them as good people that are, are healthy for the children to be around. And so then when you've been groomed that way or manipulated that way, then it's hard to untwist Mm. what has been twisted. So then should we always be suspicious of pastors 
who are exceptionally close to Sunday school teachers or youth group leaders or, I mean, how do we draw the line between what's due diligence, you know, as parents and members of churches and what is kind of obsessive suspicion? If churches consider their safety policies with their workers and their pastors, we don't want to be suspicious of our pastor. But if we put guidelines in place, like don't be alone with people in the congregation that single women, you're not going to be alone counseling them. You're going to have other people around. Those types of safety policies protect not only the workers, but the people they're working with. And we need to be more diligent in maintaining those safety policies and okay, what do we do when somebody crosses the line when it's even not as serious of a violation? Do we just let it go and let it go? Or are we like holding people accountable and saying we can't do that because it doesn't look right? Not be overly suspicious, but say we want to protect our vulnerable as well as our workers, make sure that they aren't falsely accused because we have these things set in place. And then stick to them. You know, there can't be like, a, yes. oh, well, yeah, that's the rule, but you know how it is. Because uh, that's when you hear a lot of these abuses happening uh, is when it's like, oh, but it was just that one time, which turned into five times, 10 times, and then it becomes really normal. Is it possible for a church to emerge from an abuse situation to discipline as required, and to be able to move forth in a healthy way? Or is it just kind of the kiss of death for a church when something like this happens? I think it's very possible to move forward. I think the the biggest thing that is needed is transparency, that you need to say, okay, this happened, and this is what we're going to do about it. And you need to be open with everybody not try to excuse it or minimize it or sweep it under the rug. The tendency is we want to get this over and done with as quickly as possible, and we don't want to talk about it anymore. And we need to to have transparency and say, okay, this happened, and we are taking these steps. This person has been, has received discipline, and they no longer will be you know, whatever the discipline is, you let them, let everybody know. And I think there has to be an emphasis on victim-oriented solutions. We want to make sure that the victims are safe, that they are heard, that they receive the help that they need to move forward in their life. And, and reassure them that, hey, we're, we are a church that is committed to the safety of those who worship with us. And we want you to be healthy. And we want to make sure that we help you in whatever way we can. I love what you said there about being victim focused. I think a lot of times the hush-hush mentality leaders believe will protect the victim, but it really just results in more private 
conversations and speculation happening. And that can go much longer than if church leadership would just say, this happened. This is how we're dealing with it. And let's move on. And and it seems like counterintuitive, but really just putting everything in the light is the key when there's any kind of sin in a church or a believer's life. Right. Abuse is sinful, but it is also criminal. Right. And even though we know the criminal system isn't perfect, so not all offenders that do criminal acts will end up in jail or whatever, but we still need to treat abuse as a crime and a sin. It's both. I know we oftentimes think that all sin is on an equal plane. We all are sinners, but we need not to be abusive and we need not to be criminal (laughs) in our actions. Right. This is a very complex issue. You know, it's not something, okay, ABC, it's all done and everybody's okay because it's so complex especially when it's within a family. You have, you have a love-hate relationship with your abuser when he's your father. You know, he's your father still, but he's an abuser. And this whole family dynamic, and in a church, it's the same, almost the same type of a dynamic as a family because people in a church are very close to one another. and they love one another as we should. And so when somebody does something that is really bad in our minds, it it really disrupts the whole family. You and your husband have boldly stepped into a ministry that just addresses this issue head on, which for you as a survivor is very brave. For him, as he's walked through this path with you to say, this is not just something that happened in our life, but that we can impact more people with. So I want to thank you for that, first of all, because it is such a big issue. Your goal really is to educate churches and to show them the way to get through this, this type of abuse, recognizing the victim and what they need, recognizing the entire congregation and what they need, dealing with the perpetrator and doing it in a way that honors God. That's a that's a lot of moving parts. When we started our ministry, we realized we both had graduated from Bible college and we had attended church all the while growing up. We grew up in church and these issues just were not talked about at all. Uh, We took a class in college um, called Ethical Issues of the Day, but they never talked about abuse. They never talked about domestic violence as issues that need to be addressed within the church body. It was almost assumed that we don't need to think about these things because they don't happen in a church community. And they do. And then when they happen, We didn't know how to deal with them because we weren't taught. We didn't talk about those things. And so that is why we started our ministry, because we knew that we were not equipped to handle 
a situation when it arose in our church. And because we weren't equipped, we know there's other churches and church leaders that aren't equipped as well. And that's part of our heart is to go out and equip church leaders and also to provide hope for healing for the victims of abuse so that they aren't suffering in silence. It is such a brave thing after all that you've gone through that you're so open in talking about it. The healing process begins when you tell your story. As a church, oftentimes we'll tell victims, you know, you just need to forgive and forget and get on with your life. And we don't allow them to process that trauma that they've experienced and start that healing process. And because they've almost feel like if they're, if they're struggling with that, then there's something wrong with them spiritually and that they aren't trusting God enough, but it's a process that, you know, when you've experienced trauma in your life, you do need to go through a healing process. And we need to allow victims of trauma to heal, which means that we need to allow them to talk about their trauma and process that. Faith and her husband, Dale, will be speaking at the Breaking the Silence seminar coming up February 11th at Grace Community Church in Painted Post, New York. You can find out more when you click the events section at familylife.org. Find out more about Faith's ministry at speakingtruthinlove.org. If you've enjoyed this episode of Therese Talk, be sure to subscribe. And if you really loved it, consider making a gift to Family Life, the ministry this podcast is a part of. Just go to familylife.org and find out more about what we do. Did you know we offer a variety of podcasts from news to kids to faith? You'll find a favorite on demand at familylife.org slash podcast.